Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. As ever, it's been an eventful few weeks in politics. Today, we're going to take stock of how public opinion is shaping up. And we're delighted to welcome Steve O'Neill and also Professor Will Jennings to the podcast. So, welcome, Steve. Thanks, Martin. And welcome, Will. And please introduce yourself for our listeners. Hi, Martin. Hi, Steve. Um, I'm Will Jennings. I'm Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at the University of Southampton um, and also actually um, a co-director of the Think Tank, the Centre for Towns. Excellent. Steve, would you like to kick off? Uh, with, with pleasure, yeah. Um, uh, so, Will, um, I'm aware you've done a fair bit of work on trust in government and obviously with some of the headlines in the news over the last few weeks, that's a fairly uh, relevant topic right now. Um, so I wanted to kick off by asking, what has the pandemic done for trusting government or what have you seen around that in your work? Well, I lead a, um, uh, a project called the TrustGov project, which is funded by the, uh, the UK's Economic and Social Research Council, which was looking at patterns of uh, trust in national and global governance. Uh, and when the pandemic hit, it created a really uh, fascinating dynamic for us, because uh, I'm sure you recall at the start of the pandemic, there was this real boost in support for the government and this rally, kind of, they called it the rally around the flag, that people in uh, times of threat and national insecurity um, put their trust in the government. And so we short saw various studies um, around kind of March, April last year, showing this real boost in, in trust in government. And and over, over the past year and a half now, um, we ran focus groups across England and cities and towns, uh, asking people about why, what, what issues they trusted government on, which issues they didn't trust government on. And there was a real feeling in which people had this latent trust in government to protect them. And so the pandemic has this really, you know, I've, I've written books around um, the rise of discontent and distrust in politics, but the pandemic exposed that people still despite all their cynicism and all their distrust of politicians and political class, deep down trust the state and the government to protect them in times of crisis. So are are we talking about the same thing when we say trust in government and trust in politicians? Because obviously the NHS is uh, in some ways part of the government, the civil service you could refer to as a government or you can refer to the government as the actual ministers. Uh, Is it it clear from those focus groups that people trust, which of them they trust? Well, well, it's interesting. So people on one level, when we're talking about kind of that latent trust, they're talking about the state, the government. Um, if you actually ask people the same survey questions about government and politicians, they'll be much more cynical about politicians. The politicians and politics is a dirty word, whereas people don't mind the fact of government. And so there is something a little bit distinct. And, and it's certainly true that people are able to discriminate to some extent between different institutions. So they might have higher trust in the civil service compared to, um, uh, you know, the kind of national government. Um, but a lot of those things in, in the sorts of survey-based research we do um, are quite correlated. But, but people are doing a little bit of, of kind of discriminating between the two. But, that, but you're certainly right that there is, a, there is a gap between how people see politics and the kind of dirty business of politics and kind of getting your hands dirty in, in party politics to how they see government. Um, they can be cynical about government and distrustful of government, um, but something like the pandemic really draws out that difference and contrast. Do you mind if I just jump in and ask if you could, if you can sort of explain like why when people are so cynical about um, politicians and the act of politics, they're so willing to rally around the flag and specifically to give up such freedoms to an institution or institutions or a political class 
that they have such sort of low regard for? There are various theories that are put forward, and I think you know they're kind of, they're competing, and they're probably all complementary as well. So you know, in some in some senses, it's because of that feeling of insecurity that the social psychology of it all kicks in. That in times of threat and anxiety, we have no choice. And actually, we found that a lot on the focus groups. People would say, you know, oh, I you know I sort of you know don't like Boris Johnson, but you know I kind of I trust him to look after us because that's all I can do. It's a bit like you know trusting the doctor. You kind of go and you know what choice do you have? And so on one level. Well, it's because people are in this time of crisis, this great need. They looked, um, you know, authorities to protect them, and they will follow the rules and um, um, and say they'll follow the rules um, because they don't have any other choice. Um, you know, at the same time, I think there's also, you know, there are arguments that it's about, you know, the kind of the it, times of crisis, the government and the, the the leader become a national unifying figure and centre. And actually, again, you can see that dynamics that played out in the in the certainly in the early stages of the pandemic when publics were getting uh, regular press conferences from from the the, the national leaders um, from experts and they would kind of have this focal point of their trust and so I think there, there are multiple dynamics going on but that it kind of brings into sharp focus why we have a stake for example and that's that's why you can have still this great deep cynicism and, and during the focus groups we ran over the last year and a half people were very kind of like kind of critical of certain things and they'd say oh they're not sure about one particular measure or they you know thought it was a bit chaotic but deep down they would retain that trust and it and on one level it was slightly kind of paradoxical that they kind of thought how well how can these people who are expressing all these specific points of discontent and, and complaint be trusting but it was that sort of feeling that they had to this is this is the situation we're in we need to trust them that was really interesting from a research perspective and I sort of wonder with our with our project if we hadn't had the pandemic we wouldn't have got that sense around trust we'd have had a view that was you know probably a little bit more cynical about the way that people make decisions about politics and government. So another running theme that seemed to seems to have come along with the pandemic has been various scandals associated with the government. Um, obviously, arguably the biggest one we had the other week with the Hancock affair uh, and the images that I think almost everyone now um, would recognise. Um, what, what sort of impact does that have? I mean, you talked about the deep rooted kind of trust. Does, does, is that uh, are events like that enough to really shake that? Or, or what, what do you pick up about that kind of thing? Well, I mean, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, we, we had also the kind of the Cummings kind of affair last year in terms of the trip to trip to the northeast, um, which, again, in the early focus groups we ran didn't seem to register as much, but then started being brought up. As a, as a story that people told about the pandemic. I mean, I think those sorts of events um, matter to people to the extent that they're um, stories and narratives through which they understand the pandemic. And so they don't, they somewhat erode people's cynicism and trust in um, government because they kind of, they can, they can amplify the sense there's one rule for uh, people in, in politics and the government and one rule for, for the rest of us. Um, but I think they don't necessarily erode trust, although they can kind of contribute to that cynicism. So on one level, you could say they're part of the symptom that, you know, people will. Um, I, it's not clear to me that those sorts of events then suddenly lead to mass lack of compliance, for example. I think that was often the fear last year that, you know, after the coming to fair, everyone down tools and start stop obeying the rules but i'm not sure that's true um and to the extent that um trust in the government faded a little bit and certainly the government support faded a little bit last year i'm not entirely sure it was wholly to do with the kind of the cummings affair i think there's you know people pick up on a lot of 
um, you know, small things and stories. So actually, in some ways, the communication over the pandemic in 2020 was often what got brought up over the kind of the the uh, the, the second kind of um, lockdown or kind of the stay at home, don't stay at home. And there was a there was a classic kind of Matt, Matt Lucas viral clip that kept being brought up by participants in the focus groups that had really registered with people because they were confused. So I, I, although we have these these scandals um, and these moments in which, you know, the government, government ministers or, or advisors are caught out doing things that seem contrary to the rules, uh, and they do somewhat erode trust, I often wonder how much they really erode the kind of the mass public trust, because I think people are looking to go along with the rules, and it takes a little bit more to shake them off. So I suppose some listeners who are um, critical of the government might sort of listen to this and, and follow the news and dig themselves, how, how does the government get away with all this? Um, I'm thinking now about not just when individual ministers have broken COVID rules, but for example, people have been able to get away with giving positions and contracts to what seem like friends and, and family, uh, as was part of the case with the the, um, uh, the Hancock uh, scandal. So, so is that why they seem to get away with it again? People don't ultimately mind. Yeah, and it's, I'm not sure I'd say they don't ultimately mind, but they're not necessarily paying attention to it. And they're, and they're actually, again, it's one of these things, on one hand, we, we often when we find that, you know, in the kind of polling shows that people are very supportive, very heavy handed, like measures that are very kind of what some people call authoritarian and kind of very strict social control. And everyone looks surprised saying the public are really behind this. And in the same way, I think people are... Um, uh, Although they're cynical about politics, I think they, with things like contracts being awarded at short notice or whatever, they on one hand think that's how politics works, so they're not very surprised, they're deeply cynical, so it almost gets a little bit discounted, and they also think we're in a pandemic, you know, do what you got to do, and so I think, again, I, I think as, you know, for those of us who observe how government conducts itself fairly closely, who um, are concerned with certain principles in public life, um, we might think, well, this is really not how you should, you should do things. But during a crisis, I think people are willing to give, give government a much greater benefit of the doubt um, than they would at other times. And I think, you know, the interesting thing with for the government will be as to how long that lasts. You know, at some point it's going to run out. And I think it's really interesting, you know, and the government won't know when it's going to run out until it's too late, really. So I think that's an interesting feature. And of course, the other the other reason is that, you know, ultimately in, in politics, those, you know, those of us, people like who are on this podcast or whatever are listening to it, will be paying close attention to to, to politics, what's going on, most people on a day-to-day basis aren't paying very close attention to the particular PPE government contracts that are getting awarded. And it really takes big symbolic events that resonate and have a certain meaning that get carried forward um, to have an impact. And so although there have been various stories that have looked very kind of, um, you know, smelt very bad around procurement, nothing's really stuck. And I think that's always the, the crucial thing in politics is not just that something has to be bad, but it has to sort of reinforce a particular image or framing of what's going on in government and politics to really impact the public mind. Yeah, as you say, it's very easy to forget that when you're <laughs> like we do making podcasts and things and yeah. trying to pay close attention. Um, um, so you mentioned principles and things like codes of practice. So in that context, does does that matter then? Do things like the Nolan principles, are the, are the, do they have much less of an impact than we think they should? 
Well, I think I think the question is, is more kind of how they have an impact. So, you know, in terms of public trust, you know, I'm not sure you could look at the last 20 years of British politics and say, oh, well, Nahlan has increased public trust in, in politics, because clearly, you know, the period in which that the, the, the Nahlan's been in operation hasn't seen a kind of great rise in, in public trust. But I think it does matter at elite level. And again, I think, you know, we have very, we have quite low, well, pretty low levels of public trust in British politics in kind of in general. Um, you know, and I think although we can take for granted those sorts of systems i think we shouldn't we shouldn't as they start to be eroded and certain um, institutional protections and norms around behavior seem to be eroded i think we can't take for granted that won't then have spillover effects and it won't then lead to greater cynicism and again i think one thing people in politics can be quite cynical about as well the public part paying, paying attention they don't care about this stuff they just want to get brexit done they want to get the you know kind of look after us in a crisis and that's all very true but at some point, the public does start to pay attention. So like with the kind of major government and sleaze, you know, at some point, people do start to pay attention to it. And, and I think actually in politics, I think we often focus on this from the level of citizens, but actually in politics, if there are no norms, um, and there are, or at least there are much weaker norms around how to behave in politics, it can have quite a um, negative and um, unhelpful um, impact in the way that politics conducted that actually kind of can get in the way of what politicians want to do. And so, you know, it's not it's not just simply that Nolan wasn't just in, in wasn't just brought in because it was what the public wanted. It was actually because about how the way that politics was conducted. And so it's very easy to always take the public the lens of public opinion to these things. But I actually think the erosion of particular ways of doing government will have unexpected consequences that other people <laughs> who are kind of orchestrating them won't necessarily be thinking through. That that segues rather nicely into the next question, which is that um, and I know you've said that there's there's sort of a, a very deep trust in the wider government institutions, but not, not necessarily politicians um, as, as a sort of um, group of people. Um, what are the implications of that? Is it is it sustainable to have quite low levels of trust in pol- in politicians and politics? Well, I mean, on one level, you could say that actually, in many regards, the way that that government is run today is probably more efficient, um, certainly does more with less. Um, Parliamentary democracy is in many ways healthier than it's ever been in terms of representation of local constituencies. MPs are really more accountable than they once were. So you could say, well, actually, does trust matter? And again, I think there's for political scientists like myself, there's always often an assumption that, oh, falling trust is bad. You know, we want high levels of trust. We want to be like the Nordic countries and have these high social political trust where where it's all correlated with, um, you know, good social economic outcomes. Um, And actually, you could argue that in lots of areas of politics and the business of governing, you don't need the high level of trust you know do you need high levels of trust when you're delivering certain public services now i think it is true there are many there are many policy areas where having the trust of the of the public in in government and public services does matter and so their erosion should concern us there's always been you know kind of trust in you know questions about trust in for example in tax systems and so forth to get people to come to comply and so i think in that regard it is important that we have um certainly in certain areas for for people to comply with government uh, for there to be legitimacy about what it does you do need a certain level of public trust and certainly a lot of the developments we've seen in recent years don't point towards um uh Good ways of doing politics and i think actually the other the other thing that i think is really key is as we face major global and long-term challenges like future thinking about well current pandemic and, and future pandemics but also thinking about things like climate change for policymakers and, and politicians to be able to 
address those sorts of problems and also problems like social care does require a certain degree of trust, both between citizens and politicians, but also actually between different parties and, and, you know, politicians from different parties, because often when we're looking at some major major long-term social economic challenges it's often quite easy for one party to affect from from the kind of an agreement and say oh no we wouldn't do that and point out all the problems and the costs um and and let the whoever's in government take the heat when actually there are things like social care and climate change that probably need you know cross-party consensuses and agreement to take action um and not you know politicians taking advantage of the unpopularity of dealing with certain issues labor party is currently screaming the words death tax from uh, the tail end of the last government and the conservative reaction to it, which I think exemplifies that perfectly. But let's talk about public opinion in a slightly different way and maybe a little bit more broadly. So and first of all, what does polling tell us about where the British public is on some, some of the sort of key issues of the day? And I'll leave that open to you to really sort of uh, tell us what you think those most important things are and where people are on them them sort of issues. Cool. Well, it's a fairly open open question. But I mean, I, I you know, I think, well, there are a few interesting things that, that might, might be worth observing. I mean, I think the first is that actually that um, uh, the public have been very supportive, for example, around um, quite strict measures and responses to COVID, for example. So as we as we move towards easing, and I think that of easing of restrictions, and I think there's a lot of support in general for principle that you know some people would like to get out of all the restrictions actually the public are very supportive of maintaining um uh, wearing of masks on uh, public transport uh, and enclosed areas the public actually has often been far more willing to comply with rules than often some behavioral scientists would have even suggested so i think that's you know, one interesting um point um you know and i think actually there's interesting uh, polling out today by yougov showing that the public were in great, even outside the pandemic were quite keen to keep things like 10 o'clock curfew i mean often it, it, you know polling's fantastic because it tells you the attitudes that that many of us would think well that's probably a bit extreme the public is very willing to express views on um you know and a substantial number of people were very keen to have a 10 o'clock curfew and to keep clubs and casinos shut you know that kind of authoritarian streak and social conservative streak in public opinion is always there and i think one we should never forget it i'm equally having said that there are also very strong social liberal um streaks in public in british public opinion as well which makes this kind of rather paradoxical period because i know we're living through a moment in which we're told that we've shifted right on culture and left on the economic economics but actually the the british public have never been more socially liberal on on major cultural issues, whether it's on attitudes towards race, um, sexuality or gender, they're more liberal than they've ever been. And I think that's actually one of the slightly um, uh, um, things that can be often misread into recent political uh, events, like like the the huge um, uh, victory of the, the Conservatives in 2019, which is actually we're, we're a more socially liberal nation than we were 40 years ago, 20 years ago under Tony Blair and it's easy just to forget that because people see everything through this um, Brexit culture war lens of everything shifting rightward um, but we are but actually the broader tide of public opinion is becoming more progressive still despite everything. There's been some let's say disagreement over the last few days about comments from a US pollster Frank Luntz. He said that wokeism and issues around woke 
is one of the biggest dividing lines in British politics. What do you think is the truth in that? No, I mean that, that that study came out, and there was a lot of you know <laughs> a lot of um, uh, uh, critical response. And I think you know that claim really doesn't stand up to the evidence in the sense there's polling by UCAV that suggests that over fifty percent of people don't even know what woke means. Um, you know, and so this idea that kind of we're all suddenly obsessed with wokeism and cancel culture, I think, is just a misrepresentation um, led by people who um, find it of particular concern to them. I mean, it's certainly true that if you stand back and say, um, you know, the kind of the, the cult, the divide over cultural values, over, you know, kind of issues like immigration, um, law and order potentially as well, a whole raft of issues um, is quite a significant divide. And actually the that, that kind of shifting realignment of left-right politics to more over cultural values about openness, cosmopolitanism versus kind of closed politics, immigration kind of control and so forth is certainly a much more significant and salient divide, but it's not really, or for, for the general public, is not organised around issues of woke. You know, the average person is sat in their, you know, a state in their kind of, in their kind of their, wherever they're living in the north of England, in a former industrial town or down here in the south of England, suburbia, um, where I am, aren't worrying about um um, statues being pulled down or you know kind of decolonizing the, the curriculum that's just not an issue that registers with most people and actually again one of the dangers of living our lives through the lens of polling is that if you ask people a, a, a kind of a question in the survey about you know what do they think about decolonizing their curriculum they'll give you a very black and white answer and the but the truth is that actually the way you ask these questions can have very significant effects on responses. So you can ask a question about, you know, um, making um, the curriculum and teaching of history better reflect and more accurately reflect the kind of the completeness of British history. And people will say, oh, yeah, well, that sounds perfectly reasonable. And you can ask questions that emphasize that, you know, kind of element, you know, the kind of um, um, a view around this is about kind of um, 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 uh, emphasizing you know kind of racism of, of British Empire we might say well I'm not so sure about that and so I think when we're looking at polling and these issues about wokeism it's so important to kind of be really clear that you know good survey design asking people questions in a fair nuanced way that brings out the nuance of opinion is really important because it's very easy to fall into a trap where it looks like the public is incredibly divided um, whereas actually most people are in, in in kind of britain are incredibly reasonable on these sorts of issues they'll say well you know <laughs> the empire wasn't all great and you know there are some things that we should probably talk about um and so just kind of distilling it down as that lunch report did i remember on the slides kind of britain good or bad it's sort of a ridiculous question because you know it's sort of like well what are you going to say to that well you know britain's we're all a bit of good and bad you know kind of it's like there's a there's a great um so alexander solitston quote about you know the line between good of evil cuts between all of us and i think it's sort of like ridiculous to be asked to be asking poll questions which say like is a country good or evil um i want to follow up on that um how do you or how's how do pub, people who study public opinion kind of measure or define wokeism because i'm aware you have a sort of questionnaire normally and there's a sort of spectrum from liberal to authoritarian um, and I'm assuming someone is more woke if they are near the liberal end. However, there seems to be a difference between the kind of what we used to think of as a, a liberal person and a sort of new hyper progressive sort of woke person. And the obvious example would be, say, around a free speech type issue where hyper progressives are, are not as enthusiastic about free speech as maybe liberals were. So it, how, how do you kind of tease that out? And, and is there any way of, sort of distinguishing between a sort of liberal person and a woke person? 
I mean, I don't, I'm just bluntly, I don't think there is because I don't think there's been a very serious conversation about what it means to be woke. There's not a sort of serious theoretical framework around wokeism. And, and partly, bluntly, I think most academics would steer clear of it because it's become, like, like many other terms, become such a pejorative term. I mean, actually, you know, I kind of, in some of my work, use the term cosmopolitan. I don't use it very emotively, but for some people, it is quite a kind of, is quite an emotive term. I mean, obviously, I think if, if one was to get at the heart of what some of the issues around what people are arguing about workism are concerned with, it would be to do with things, as, as you say, like kind of, you know, the whether or not we should suppress free speech, you know, kind of protect, you know, whether whether there are moments in which it's appropriate not to give people, like suppress free speech, that's a problematic term, but basically whether or right it's, it's okay to say that people shouldn't give me a be given a platform um, and actually a lot of the difficulties of asking good survey questions about that it come down to the fact that often a lot you know it's easy to simplify a lot of these issues to free speech non-free speech whereas actually a lot of them are much more complicated it's a little bit like the kind of debate around um twitter and facebook and donald trump right now well you know donald trump 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 has free speech, but, you know, Facebook and Twitter don't have to give him the right to give him that platform. And I think actually, you know, the debate around free speech in universities is a little bit more complica complicated, you know, in the sense that I've, I've been in a situation where I've, you know, been promoting the fact that we should have people who we don't like the political views of talking in, in on university campuses. And I'm very comfortable with that. But one could see circumstances in which it might not be appropriate for an institution to um, of any sort of institution, whether it's university or a bank or whatever, to have a speaker who represents particular values. And again, I think giving, um, presenting, um, and measuring public opinion in a kind of in a in a sophisticated way is quite often um, is difficult. You know, often these things are kind of distilled down to just well, should be people be allowed to what say what they want or not? And actually, often it's a little bit more complicated than that. That seems to me a really good um, sort of point to try and talk about the sort of i suppose political center now obviously we're about political centerism and that's why i'm sort of asking that way but what got me well that's what has inspired in my mind is that we've always certainly as long as i've been a sort of adult actively interested in politics there have always been restrictions so it's not just been about sort of total free speech and everyone's allowed and really controlled and no one's allowed you know, there's always been like the BMP, for example, and whether or not they should be given a platform is a sort of, you know, it's a bit of a long running thing. And it's now become more of a, the, the boundaries have shifted in terms of what certain people consider acceptable. But so where is that sort of political centre, given that we are talking about, are you shifting the boundaries from, you know, basically very little restriction to slightly more restriction potentially where yeah. is that sort of center ground that moderate sort of compromise or agreement between the sort of i guess majority or majority taking account minority or how you know what do you think about all of that i know there's a lot there but yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, the one thing to say actually is to kind of throw up on is, in one regard, you could say that we've never had so much freedom of speech, and I think that's certainly an argument in the sense that you know, um, technology has given us possibilities, platforms to voice our opinion to substantially large audiences just at the click of a button. What we're doing now, right? You know, potentially twenty-five years ago, we couldn't have done. There might have been some sort of kind of you know, kind of like radio programs that we could have done, but you know, they'd have been heavily gatekeeping. You know, there've been lots significant gatekeeping 
gatekeepers, now those of us who use social media, all different sorts of platforms, can publish our views and our thoughts to thousands, tens of thousands of people in a click and have, you know, something we write, you know, if you kind of got amplified through the right kind of, um, you know, influencers, so we might say, can go to 100,000, a million people almost, you know, I don't have 100 million followers on Twitter, but you can get things that are seen by a lot of people. Um, and it's sort of bizarre in that sense to talk about free, like a lack of freedom of speech when we're actually more more capable than ever in an unregulated way to put out put out whatever we like. And so that, in many ways, is one of the again a deep paradox. Just like we have this um, this this though, as I was saying, there's kind of the, the growing social liberalism around a huge number of issues. At the same time, people talk and I've talked about a kind of shift to the right on culture. Same with freedom of speech. Now, the question of where the political centre is is rather interesting in, in the sense that I mean it's it's much more complicated now because traditionally it was just between left and right and so it was basically a debate around the people who wanted a bigger versus a small state and so there's a very nice um, piece of political science by um, John Bartle and uh, Jim Stimson and Sebastian um, Delapine yeah, I can pronounce his second name, um, uh, a few years ago now, called The Moving Centre, which was essentially how the public mood in British politics moved from left to right over very long um, time periods, and that responded to the size of government. So as the government, it's a it's kind of thermostatic response of public opinion. So the idea that as the as the government got bigger, um, uh, the public wanted kind of a more so a more kind of conservative, smaller state, and as the, as the government shrunk, uh, spending fell off. People wanted more government and more spending, and there was a sort of that kind of centre balancing. Um, now where the political centre is sort of compl complicated because we have these two dimensions. We have the, the, the economic dimension of essentially econ economic issues of how big the state should be, how much spending should we have. And we also have the, the cultural dimension you know, organized, you know, predominantly around issues around immigration, race, um, and um, uh, things like Brexit and crime, for example, that's always been kind of that social conservatism dimension versus openness um, uh, um, as a kind of, as a, as a kind of that, that dimensional conflict. And so to be in the political center now is almost to be in the center of those two Polls, and that's actually why I think cent centrists um, feel a little bit more of a, a rare species because you're actually trying to find the political center in a world where there are these two dimensions of politics rather than one. So traditionally, you know, the third way type approach of oh, let's you know the kind of the 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 third way of kind of of Anthony Giddens and Tony Blair was a little bit of a well, let's have a little bit of you know you know public spending, but you know kind of markets in how we deliver deliver public services, you know, efficiency, learning through some private private sector, you know, kind of trying to make government more efficient, but still believing in, you know, state intervention, but not dominating the market. And now we have this much more complicated space where we're trying to manage that feeling of a kind of, you know, kind of open versus closed society alongside kind of push to the left in some quarters on intervening in the economy versus the market and on uh, kind of market forces on the other. So that, that I think is why we're living in much more complicated complicated times to get our heads around. And do you think that the the people who have traditionally, I say traditionally, but let's say over the last sort of, you know, 25 odd years, you know, since the sort of end of major and start of Blair, that the political centrists have tended to be on one side of the culture, open, closed, you know, liberal authoritarian spectrum in that they have tended looking at the conservative liberal democrat and labor parties have tended to be towards the sort of 
the remains side, to be perfectly honest, and all of the things that that takes on that sort of world view on the liberal, open, sort of cosmopolitan side, and have now lost to some extent that dominance towards a more culturally conservative movement with this government. And do you feel that that, or do you think that that could sort of underpin some of the feeling of displacement among those sort of political centrists? Yeah, I mean, well, I think what happened bluntly was that because that cultural dimension of politics wasn't a sale and it wasn't what politics was organised around, all the political parties competed over the economic centre. They're kind of the size of the state. And so if you look actually at, you know, whether it's Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, um, you know, kind of the history of Liberal Democrats under, you know, Paddy Ashdown or Charles Kennedy, um, essentially they were they were all social liberals. You know, David Cameron's very, that kind of that generation of conservative, that, well, you know, obviously there were periods in opposition to Tony Blair when you could say the conservatives weren't so, as socially liberal, but David Cameron and this kind of the successful reinvention of the conservatives were, were a socially liberal project with, you know, a bit more eco- economically right wing. Um, but that actually just reflects the fact that, you know, the political elite are more socially liberal than your average typical voter that's still actually true you know although despite we've had some change in parliament you know um the in in general um the political elite certainly on certain issues not on every issue um are are, are more um uh liberal than voters um and so what brexit has done is really kind of push that that cultural dimension to the fore um, and it's put up a whole load of voters up for grabs who would have traditionally just voted a particular way and so you know those those heady days of centrism um uh have gone to some extent but as i say i mean i think it is easy to over egg the what that means because the sort of cultural conservatism we might kind of call it that we're dealing with in britain um and we're dealing in 20 in britain in 2021 is nothing like either america which is often seen as the kind of the count the kind of the great example of oh we're having a cultural war just like america well you know our social structures our attitudes um are very different kind of fundamental values of public opinion are actually very different from american public and and also we are you know we are still a very socially liberal nation and again you could argue actually boris johnson in many ways encapsulates many of these contradictions perfectly because he's actually i mean you know it's kind of it's open to debate what he really stands for but he's someone who's i think you know broadly socially liberal um kind of socialized in that kind of the British political tradition of the last 40, 50 years, which is, you know, fairly, fairly socially liberal, obviously took a different side on Brexit. And so, you know, and the modern Conservative Party is actually, um, although, you know, it's kind of straddling a position where it's actually quite progressive in certain areas of, of race, it's given, you know, kind of significant political office to, to um, uh, um people from ethnic minority backgrounds um you know kind of significantly so and so even it it, it doesn't have uh, automatically the look of a kind of hugely socially conservative party though obviously many of its policies are and the way it's pursuing pursuing a particular policy agenda which does have a particularly kind of socially conservative slant um and so i think that's one of the, the difficult difficult ways of navigating really um, um our political moment is I don't think that sort of centrist um, social liberalism is dead. It's certainly on the back foot. Um, but I think but I think often opponents of it often like to overemphasize the extent to which it's been defeated. Well, I think even in broad public opinion terms, 
public is actually quite, it, it, I think many media elites and also um, political elites on, on that side of the spectrum often like to exaggerate the extent to which voters are socially conservative and not do want particular um, sorts of policy when actually they're really reflecting their own preferences rather than voters. So let's sort of segue to party politics via something that you just brought up about alignment. So how well are the parties aligned from their voters to their MPs within the wider public? So and then what are the, the sort of implications? So, you know, we had David Gorg on recently talking about this sort of the realignment and the grand realignment, great realignment is something that gets talked about. But how well aligned are parties and their voters and the public to start with? Well, I mean, I think it's well known that um, the Labour Party, have, you know, for the last seven years, we've been talking about that kind of um, complicated relationship between the Labour Party and its traditional electorate and how it's kind of losing its traditional working class base, um, partly due to differences over Brexit, but just more, more broadly due to that kind of changing social economic structures to kind of drift those voters away from Labour, many for reasons that, you know, some do with reasons to do with what the party's done, but actually some to do with fundamental structural changes in society and economy that have meant that just, you know, the kind of the working class of today is just not like the working class of 50, uh, 70 years ago. Um, and so we've talked a lot about that. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the Cheshire and Amersham um, uh, by-election recently, which the Liberal Democrats won on a huge swing, has exposed some, one thing that some of us have been talking about for a little while is that, you know, you can't have a realignment. I think as we've seen with the Brexit realignment and the Conservatives' huge victory in 2019, it's very easy to focus on one side kind of collapsing and you know obviously kind of labor's falling away in the red wall um as it became known um was hugely significant but it you know voters so parties can't take their voters and their electorates for granted and obviously one of the criticism of labor uh, in its traditional heartlands also in scotland was it kind of you know became just took its voters for granted and i think in the same way the new conservative party and its new electorate um, you know, it needs to start to recognise that it can't take all its traditional voters for um, granted. The sorts of professional, educated classes, the, you know, the traditionally voted conservative, uh, arguably have a different sort of set of values from the party today. And it can't assume that some of these leafy suburbs in southern England are always going to vote conservative. And so I think that's one of the interesting moments we're at really as though we've seen the realignment under Labour it's interesting to, to the extent to which that's going to continue I think even in some regards it's a little bit over exaggerated in the sense that Labour still holds seats in the north of England it still holds a significant chunk of the working class um, although some of those structures have changed but the Conservatives themselves are going through a shift um, and we're not and it's not quite clear how that's going to play out but I think it has um, time goes on, um, and as the kind of Labour Party continues to change and respond to the result in 2019, you may find that con that Conservative coalition coming under fracture, and I think it will come under fracture, but in, and kind of pressure both to do with the differences between the different sorts of voter, but actually as you start um, um, finding in your party large numbers of MPs from very different parts of the country, um, that also creates quite interesting dynamics. You know, one of the things that's interesting in Labour the last few years has been that the MPs representing northern constituencies, the voters of Lee, would often have a very different approach to Brexit. Uh, not always, but often, 
than their counterparts who represent areas of London, for example, much more kind of um, uh, diverse um, remain voting areas. And so I think the Conservatives haven't yet experienced the, the brunt of that. But as, as time goes on, perhaps, you know, they're kind of, if they do form a government in the future with a small majority, they might find those sorts of divisions much more um, salient, much more significant and much more problematic to navigate. We've touched on some of these issues already, but what, in your view, does the Conservative Party stand for now? So, I mean, we've talked about a little bit how they, they've changed from the sort of Cameron era onwards, but yeah, what, what do they stand for now? How do the public see them? And is there anything else on sort of how they've changed that we want to cover before we move on to Labour? Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, so the interesting thing, I think, for the Conservatives, actually, is in some senses, I read a piece uh, with Jerry Stoker and Lawrence McKay recently on the politics of levelling up, which is, I think it's not actually clear what they stand for. I mean, they, you know, they're obviously a hugely successful electoral machine. They've got Brexit done, such as it is. Um, but actually, you know, one of the paradoxes of the kind of the modern Conservative Party under Boris Johnson and levelling up, for example, is that you know, it's just not clear what this party stands for in the sense that if levelling up is a serious project about um, redistributing wealth and opportunity um, within the country, that really involves quite a redistributive interventionist approach to governing that is nothing like the Conservative Party of the last 40, 50 years, and arguably even as a little bit of a departure from the kind of post-war consensus Conservative Party, although perhaps not so much. Um, and so it is really a kind of paradox about how can this party that's getting Brexit done in the kind of vision of, you know, how can, how can a party that's got people like kind of the free marketeers of the Thatcher era, like John Redwood, still around, um, people who believe very firmly in the let the market decide, um, be making decisions about the direction of different parts of the country. Um, and I think that is a, is, a, is a really unresolved paradox. And I think the, the political genius of Boris Johnson in a, in a little way is that he's able to, you know, kind of just swan through that um, contradiction and say, don't worry about it to people. And kind of, as long as you're successful in some point, those contradictions don't get pulled apart so much, but it's a very obvious contradiction. So if you ask me, what does the Conservative Party of 2021 stand for? I would say, I'm not quite sure, but it's quite interesting. And it's gonna be interesting to watch it, try and resolve that question for itself. Because at some point, you know, people within the party are gonna start asking that question themselves. Okay, so let's move on to the Labour Party. What state is the Labour Party in? And is the state it currently finds itself, and this would obviously have been a very, very different conversation, potentially, uh, depending on the, you know, if 400 votes had gone differently in Batley and Spent. But is the Labour Party in a uniquely bad position? Or is it just sort of suffering as part of the crisis of Western social, sort of social democracy? Um, I mean, in one regard, you could say actually Labour's still in a better position than many of its social democratic um, uh, counterparts in in many European countries. For example, the Netherlands, the uh, the, the Netherlands uh, social democratic party would be love to be polling at the levels that Labour does. I mean, look, you know, Labour faces some really serious structural issues around the nature of its support. Uh, that kind of and it's not just the kind of the loss of its old base in traditional heartlands. It's actually about the aging and the and the dying out of that kind of previous working class cohorts there are issues to do with the changing nature of the economic pact actually that you know kind of voters who are older older voters are often often not always but often relatively uninsulated from uh, shocks to the labor market and so forth and so labor finds itself not so much the party of the working class but people are in, in kind 
kind of employment, for example, but also the party of um, kind of graduates and professionals as well. And so it's got this, um, you know, rather new changing electorate, um, losing potentially its heartlands, which, you know, is not necessarily a bad thing for political party. Parties have to adapt, you know, bluntly, again, one thing that we forget in all the whole narrative about why Labour's ended up where it is, is that Labour shifted to the centre through the through for that, the end of the 80s and the 90s under Tony Blair, under John Smith and then Tony Blair, um, because of the shrinking working class, that actually being a kind of wholly work, a party just for the working class um, in the kind of the 1960s was a sort of, was a kind of, a, was an, a, as, a, as a political party and thinking about representation was completely possible given the class structure of British society. Now, as we see rising number of graduates, a shrinking share of the electorate being made up of the traditional working class, it's quite understandable that Labour's actually had to think about its appeal to different parts of the electorate and its problems face really just about kind of developing an electorate that is large enough to consistently win elections, which it hasn't yet. So, you know, it faces really big structural issues. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things I think that trying to reflect on where, where Labour is right now, that it's had these very it had a very bad result in 2019. Obviously, didn't have great results in in the local elections earlier in the year in Hartlepool. Um, better re- election in, in Batley, um, but it had this very good result in 2017. I think no one really understands what happened in 2017. But I think one really important thing thing to take to take from that is not necessarily why why it happened, but that the, the British electorate in the 21st century at this point is much more volatile than it's been in the past, and so. You know, Labour needs to certainly address many of its structural problems, <clears throat> but it doesn't mean that those can't be overcome. You know, if you remember, think about, you know, Boris Johnson winning a huge majority in December 2019, the Conservative Party had polled in, in, in the European Parliament elections in May less than 10%. Well, you know, that's sort of like its lowest result vote share ever, I think, in a, in a national election. So, you know, it's, um, it's easy to forget very quickly that, you know, fortunes can change. You talked about putting to, Labour putting together a new coalition and facing sort of structural issues. Does it need to become more like so-called blue Labour? Fairly left on the economy, but fairly right on culture and sort of flag-waving and patriotism and stuff like that. Or is that just the Conservative Party? Is that the new centre ground? And would Labour trying to fill that ground itself mean it was sort of at risk of being a poor imitation of the Tories, but it's about what future is it for Labour and is it blue Labour? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not convinced that that blue Labourism is really as you know. I mean, there are, there are multiple reasons that I don't see it as really the kind of the way forward for Labour for for multiple reasons. I mean, the one one is that you know, bluntly, when Labour has tried and played around with those sorts of ideas, voters just don't buy it, right? So whenever there's kind of you know, kind of controls and immigration mugs, or you know, kind of um, um, Gordon Brown trying to address it in, in, as Prime Minister, you know, voters just don't buy it for, from Labour in the sense they, they buy it from the Conservatives and so that's a challenge for them if you if you're trying to compete on an issue that political scientists like me me would say you know is owned by the other party that that's a difficulty and the other reason quite bluntly is that you know again this is why I, why I get frustrated a little bit with the kind of blue Labour style criticisms of Labour as if all it needs to do is shift right on immigration it'll suddenly win big majorities well if only politics was that simple because bluntly Labour's contemporary um, electorate uh, um, is really, you know, very socially liberal. And so, you know, as the Conservative Party is finding out its southern heartlands, 
um, you know, um, you if you shift to a rightward position on immigration, other issues like 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 Brexit, for example, you would suddenly find that many of your your current base um, would start to defect and look to other parties. And again, that was one of the challenges that Labour faced in the 2019 election, that if it hadn't really kind of taken a stance that signaled it was kind of still committed to the remain side of, remain side of politics, it might have seen remain voters departing in even even larger numbers, which make up a bigger share of its electorate. So it was very easy to say, oh, well, the party should just have voted Brexit through and kind of said it was going to get Brexit done. But all these things come with costs. Is that because when Labour does a Gordon Brown British Jobs for British Workers or an Ed Miliband controls on immigration, Mark, is it because it's very clearly not authentic and not sustained? And like, it's kind of... It feels like Labour sort of dips its toe in the water, goes, you know, we'll just say this one thing and then, like, then we've kind of, you know, we've covered that now. You know, we, we've covered controls on immigration. Rather than, like, sticking at it, like, telling the story about this is what we believe in, this is why we believe it, this is what we're doing, you know, re- and really committing to it so that it doesn't just sort of... People are cynical about politicians. They're especially surely cynical about political stunts and that's what this comes across as that you basically the party's trying to take people for mugs literally with mugs but yeah i mean I, I think i think i think it's a combination though it's the combination of that perceived inauthenticity or lack of commitment it's not seen as being really committed on it um but it is also just the fact that you know it's base and not here it, you know it's it's respect to elect, electorate and not um you know um, subscribe to those views and so the actual benefits that you get from attracting new voters versus pushing other voters away are pretty minimal right and so that's the that's the real you know challenge for for labor so i, I think it's a two-part challenge and as i say it's easy to say oh well you know ed Miliband just really needed to go really, really kind of full marine le pen and he'd have kind of kept you know kind of like you know all the kind of uh, you know their support in among those sorts of voters well you know that 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 those sorts of decisions don't come without costs, and I think those of us who commentate on politics or analyse it always need to be really clear that actually politics is not as simple as that. And you know, you can have something that looks nice on paper, um, but actually, the reality is that you know it can be risky. So we've talked about differences between people and between political parties, and I wondered if we can move on to talk about places. Um, and Will, I know you've written about two Englands, um, so. I wonder if you could explain a bit about what that means, that what two Englands are, and do you have any uh, thoughts about how they might be brought together? Yeah, well, I mean, in, in one way, it's just another way of talking about the realignment that we were discussing earlier between, you know, kind of the older demographics, um, traditional working class, people of lower educational attainment, swinging towards the Conservatives and voting, and younger professionals, um, uh, graduates, people from ethnic minorities, tending to vote in higher numbers for Labour. And so the idea of two Englands that Jerry and Stoker and I wrote an essay in Political Quarterly in 2016 was partly to do with also then on top of that, what you see, not just in the UK and many other countries, are dynamics of driven by agglomeration economies of cities, clustering of creative economies, um, professional 
professional firms, knowledge economy in major cities, um, agglomeration of economics being the idea that, you know, kind of clustering effects drive economic innovation and growth. So we've seen major core cities being drivers of growth in regions and, and countries across the world. And what you see there is actually what we did with Ian Warren at the Centre for Towns. Ian's, Ian's analysis shows that basically cities, despite an ageing population, major cities are getting younger whereas peripheral areas, smaller towns, villages are getting older. And what, what that means, it sort of reinforces these dynamics of realignment. So as cities actually vote in more and more socially liberal ways for parties of the left, social liberal parties, whether they're Labour Party or Green Party in other countries or so forth, those peripheral areas tend to vote more uh, for social conservative parties, whether they're Conservative Party or, or, or the Republicans, for example, in America. And so the Two England's idea was really that in the, the dynamics, both of social economic change and that realignment were creating much sharper divisions around place. Well, to what extent do you think that that is basically driven by people like me who come from a town and didn't see much of a sort of economic future and so up sticks went off to the big city and haven't as yet returned how much of that demographic and sort of population change is driven by that sort of desire for a essentially you know better future and uh, more fulfilling work or you know better prospects at work rather and a fulfilling life from that Absolutely. I mean, I think it's hugely that essentially what's what happening is that in the modern economy, you know, well, I mean, I think that there's, I think there's multiple factors going on. So, you know, the first bluntly is that, you know, someone who works in university, universities tend to be located in larger towns or if there are exceptions. Right. But essentially, you know, kind of clustering of higher education in places that people move to when they're younger, often stay or then are recycled onto even larger cities. That's the sort of dynamic. And then people going to look for professional work in larger economic centres. And again, it's a completely understandable dynamic that essentially people are going to look for high quality jobs. They're not necessarily those in smaller towns or smaller regional economies. Um, that's a very clear um, dynamic. And I think there's a, one other thing around culture that can't, shouldn't be underst understated, which is, you know, younger generations are looking for fun, interesting places to go and live and so you know it's often a dynamic that you know whether it's a regional city like kind of Manchester or Leeds or London that younger people well, who are living in small towns who have the opportunity to go and work in a larger city which has got a kind of thriving nightlife more culture will take up of those opportunities and so that's why again you see this kind of sorting of places of place, certain parts of the, of the country you know where essentially if you want a kind of high high quality professional job often you know you'll have um great difficulty of finding in a particular smaller more peripheral areas and need to go to a major city so absolutely those dynamics you know still exist um economic geographers used to talk about the london escalator which was sort of the idea that you know people would be kind of attracted into london in their 20s to work and then would kind of be uh, eventually they exhausted remain to be thrown out in the southern uh, suburbs around the kind of the south um, after they kind of been burned out by economic life during the 20s and the kind of and have children there but actually I think people are in major cities are staying um, for longer periods um, and so I think those are creating quite distinct dynamics and the idea of two Englands was essentially that actually we're starting to live increasingly in places that are very much more different in their values. So when we have these kind of you know, podcast conversations we tend to talk about sort of England in one block and Scotland perhaps a different block and maybe occasionally Wales differently but not often and Northern Ireland different. Um, 
how much does that cut it in terms of England anymore? Can we really meaningfully talk about politics in England? Or should we be talking about politics in London, uh, like we did with David Gork the other week, talked about politics in the south of England, so, and so on and so forth? Should we be more sort of granular in these conversations? Well, I mean, I think it's certainly true, for example, that you often get quite distinct regional trends. I mean, there's there's an argument, bluntly, that we should always be zooming into more and more fine grained geography. So, for example, you can talk about when we, you know, when we report on local elections and I work with the Sky News as election analyst, you know, you could look at a major city, um, but then suddenly you, you drill in. And you find that, you know, actually within London, there are different voting patterns that, um, you know, Manchester, not so many different voting patterns, but, you know, actually you can kind of look into, for example, Southampton, where, where, I, where I work, you could you say in Southampton, they're actually very distinct, that two Englands gets magnified on the on the university town, for example, where you have areas that are the traditional kind of working class areas of the city, which haven't changed as much. And you have the areas where lots of young professionals, combinations of students, you know, kind of people who work in higher education, but also other, um, you know, kind of new newer industries live. And so at a very granular level, you can have quite um, distinct political worlds. And so I mean, it's certainly true that I think if we're looking at regions, you know, the, the politics of the South is very different from the politics of the Northeast and versus the Northwest. Um, um, and so, you know, we, yeah, we now have to talk about, you know, Scottish politics as a completely different beast. Um, and certainly, you know, I think in England, you could argue that a lot of the, the geographical differences in part reflect the kind of fundamental demographic trends over values and so forth. But there are there are elements of the very significant to different regions that are, are important to recognise. And so, you know, certainly we when we talk about English politics, it's very important to recognise that certain places have very different um, dynamics, histories that do get carried forward in terms of identity that make politics there very different. You know, Liverpool's a great example of some somewhere that really on demographics alone should be more conservative than it is but due to a, a range of factors around its kind of political and cultural history is very la- labor leaning so I, i've got into the habit with these podcasts to sort of zoom out at the very end um and so we obviously talked about lots of different uh, realignments and regions and differences in parties um but as someone who's running focus groups and looking at public opinion now i'm going to ask you the kind of question that um, TV pundits always ask and, and never wants to avoid. But based on what we're seeing at the moment um, in public opinion, w- what are the prospects for us not having a conservative government at the next election, or maybe let's say the next couple of elections? Because at the moment, the narrative is very much that there's not likely to be a, a different government. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think I, I think I, after 2015 election, I learned not to make two big predictions. I mean, I think what you would say, are, I think there are a few key factors that you'd need to take into account when looking to project what might happen in the next election, election afterwards. I mean, the first is the Conservative have a huge majority um, and therefore it's very difficult for any, you know, government to be kind of, you know, to be overturned on that sort of size of majority. Labour needs an absolutely huge lead to kind of put its own majority government in. And so if you do ask me bluntly, I'd say the next election, you know, the or I would be, I'd be, if I was on to Betfair, I'd be putting money on, a, on another Conservative government. Now, that's not to say I don't think their majority won't necessarily fall. I think that the the conditions in 2019 were absolutely optimal for 
Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, and I think you know they will do better to do any, to to improve on 2019. And I think you know if you're thinking about where Labour is, someone asked me recently what if we were looking back to previous times is is the next election kind of 1992 or 1997? I'd say it's much more likely to be 1992. If you're Labour and the Liberal Democrats, you're much more looking to get um, to reclaim some ground to make life much more difficult for the government. Now you know all that said, I think there are additional factors that we need to keep in mind which are the electorate is much more volatile than it was um, previously historically. Voters are much more willing to switch. The 2019 European Parliament elections were a good example. And, and 2017 general election is as well. And so, you know, if you're the Conservatives, you can't take for granted that you'll be able to keep your current coalition together to quite the same extent. And so, you know, Boris Johnson in 2019 had a particular appeal. Um, whether he, and I think he's actually, as a politician, very much able to keep the current conservative coalition together um and so um i think um one one issue for the conservatives if boris johnson doesn't stay on as prime minister um uh, you know i think he, we might expect him to lead them into the next the next um parliament but actually you know essentially for the conservatives how do they sustain their current electoral coalition under newly under you know the next leader and are there is the next leader going to be as able to bridge that divide between the electorate and where the party is um and so you know I, yeah my projection is well no i think the conservatives will you know it will be a huge shock if they didn't win a, a, a modest sized majority at the next general election um but we also shouldn't take for granted they'll be in government forever and I do think actually if you look at you know we just um with Rob Ford and Tim Bell and Paula Surridge we've just uh, got a book coming out in the autumn on the 2019 general election with with Palgrave called, called the British general election 2019 um and essentially if you if, you know if you look kind of go back over the course of the parliament you know Labour was really significantly weakened um by the party's organization by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and so you know it's easy to say that Labour was in a real state um, then, but actually, you know, under good good leadership, you know, I know Starmer hasn't necessarily connected with voters lately, but it, it won't necessarily still have the same sorts of negatives that Corbyn did in 2019. So, you know, I think, you know, if you ask me on my kind of base, my baseline expectation of sort of the size of a Conservative majority for next election will be something in the kind of 30 to 40 seat bracket, but it could be a bit higher, it could be a bit lower. And, you know, I've been very wrong before, so one doesn't get too confident about predictions that's what's nice about that is you've given quite a concrete prediction there and i think people normally um avoid those so that's good final final kind of follow-up question and i think you may have already touched on this but is the kind of normal state of things now and, and, and that's probably quite hard to define but is the normal state of things now a conservative majority because i think back and you think the election before the 2019 one 2017 uh, hung parliament before that was, I think, a very small majority, and before that was a coalition, so hung parliament. So is the norm a Tory majority or is the norm a hung parliament? Well, I mean, I think these things are always changing, right? So essentially, we were in a period for a little while between 2010 and 15, where it felt, and, and 17, where it felt like, you know, kind of a hung parliament was the new, was the new, was the new normal. Um, but before that, obviously, from 1997 through 2005, felt like Labour majority was the, was the new normal. And so, you know, obviously, at the moment, Labour is significantly disadvantaged in the electoral system because of the allocation of their vote. Um, but again, you know, one can't treat all these sorts of dynamics as being immutable and unchangeable that you know labor does face 
huge obstacles to get over the line for a majority. And, you know, we seem to be in a phase where, you know, conservative majorities, because of the nature of their electoral coalition, um, uh, is, is, is more, is better positioned to um, uh, win a majority. But I think one shouldn't take that for granted. And one also shouldn't take for granted just how unusual the circumstances of the 2019 election were. Right. Uh, well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak to us this evening. That's been very good, Ian, a really good discussion. So many thanks to thanks. you there. Steve, as always, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Martin. And thanks again, Will. Pleasure. Great. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. And goodbye. <laughs>